on the job with Francis Leach and Sally Rugg. On the job, the podcast all about making your working life better. Francis Leach here for our summer series, our history series, and it's been great fun to sort of delve into the history of the labour movement in Australia, our workers' movements, because there's so many great characters and so many great stories that haven't been told or have been forgotten. And over the summer, we're going to bring you plenty of them with our very own Dr. Liam Byrne. He's a historical oracle, and he joins us again on the podcast today. G'day, Francis. How, How are you, going? Dr. Liam? Excellent, mate. Great to be here with you again. Uh, thank you for coming in. As I said, I'm really looking forward to our summer series because we'll get to talk about a whole bunch of people who have done incredible stuff. And sometimes because history is written by uh, by a particular class of person who might not be that interested in the, in the history of, of working class people and labour movements, we get written out of history. But we're here to, to correct that balance a little bit, aren't we? That's right, Francis. I think it's one of the things that you see consistently over, you know, it's not just in Australia, it's country after country, is that so many millions of people who've actually contributed to social change, they just get forgotten. Uh, they make massive contributions to you know the things that we enjoy and take for granted as our rights, but their names are lost. Uh, oftentimes, their images are lost. We can't even see what they look like, but we're living their legacy. We're, you know, we're continuing to build and enjoy the sort of rights that they won for us, and we're trying to build a better world that they imagined as well. So it's really important that we do keep in mind that when we read the history books, there's going to be certain characters who are there, but there's also going to be a lot of people who should be there who are missing. Well, let's uh, correct the record a little bit and start with an incident in 1969. And it's a famous story in union circles about a woman who chained herself to the doors of a building holding a sign that basically kicked up a firestorm about gender rights, pay equity, and issues we're still fighting about today. And her name was Zelda Daprano. Tell us about Zelda. Well, Zelda is one of the most incredible union uh, activists of the 20th century all time. Uh, I love telling her story and reading about her story. She was born in um, Carlton uh, in Melbourne and grew up in working class, a very working class suburb as it was then. It's changed a little bit now. And she was born in the late 1920s. So her early experiences were of the Great Depression um, and its effects. So a horrible time for working people. She entered the workforce when she was uh, 14, you know, sort of early teens, like many working class people did. And she began to enter the workforce and to lose a lot of jobs very quickly because she went into a lot of Melbourne factories, like a lot of other working class women at the time, and absolutely refused to put up with the indignities and a terrible work condition. So she kicked up a stink and met recrimination from employers very, very quickly because of that. So she was a rabble rouser and a rebel from a very, very early age. She got political and joined the Communist Party. She became uh, a qualified dental nurse. Um, and was a very, very strong unionist. And also I should say that within both the union movement and the Communist Party, it was not afraid at all to point out sexism within those organisations and to challenge it. Which at the time would have been quite a brave thing to do and, and would have been would have kicked up a major storm because it wasn't the done thing. Absolutely. And, you know, there is a long history of union women um, tackling sexism within the workplace, within society, but also within the movement itself. Um, and, you know, Zelda very much stood on their shoulders, but also herself had an incredible legacy that uh, she sort of led. And it's one of the reasons why she became so well-known and the reason she became so well-loved in the movement, particularly by working class women, but uh, more broadly as well, was because she wasn't willing to just accept it. She wanted a better world. She was willing to campaign for it. She was willing to fight for it. And she did what she thought was necessary. Okay. So take us to 1969. What did she do? So it's a really incredible story. So Zelda, by this point, was working for the Meat Workers Union. Uh, and the Meat Workers was one of two unions which took a case for equal pay to the Arbitration Commission in 1969 in June. So Zelda was there every day. The uh, case was argued for by the Australian Council of Trade Unions and its advocate, who may, may not be aware for uh, one of the, the last times, was Bob Hawke. 
And Zelda uh, sort of speaks in her memoirs about how terrible it was as a, a woman worker to be sitting in this commission day in, day out, and you would hear four male judges running events and then the male advocate for the ACT and then the male lawyers for the employers sitting there debating the rights of working women while working women were sitting in the stands silently. The result of this case was a very, very small step forward and it led to equal pay for women who did the exact same type of work in the exact same industries as men. However, that was only about 18% of the workforce because one of the things that's happened um, in the Australian economy is that large sections of industries which are dominated by women have been systematically undervalued because of sexism. But Zelda was desperately afraid that after this decision that people were just going to say, all right, well, job done. We've got some form of equal pay. We can put that issue away. We don't have to worry about it anymore. And she was saying, no, this is still a major issue for all the rest of the women who haven't got equal pay. So what she decided to do was to make a stand and to kick up a stink about this. So she had a chain that was donated by the uh, Painters and Dockers Union. She went down to the Commonwealth Building, which was where a number of the Commonwealth Government officers were. And she chained herself to the front of the building while other protesters, uh, women protesters, marched up and down with placards trying to kick up a stink and cause attention. And the reason for this was it was to make the point that equal pay wasn't a reality. Even though you had a case with some small positives and that was great, it still wasn't fully there and they were going to keep the campaign going. And so it's really important to capture that public attention and also attention within the movement to say this issue is not going away until it's actually, you know, we actually have equality. So there she is. She's got her comrades protesting alongside her. She's chained to the Commonwealth building, the big building where all right. the public servants work. What did her sign say? So the sign basically said that no difference in the basic rates between men and women. One rate only. One rate only. So the reason for this was that if people are aware, I mean, without going into, I, I find industrial relations and arbitration history extremely interesting. I know some people don't. This is what we're here for, Liam. But the, the, the basis of the Australian system at that point was uh, under arbitration, which was a, a court would hear workers and employers sort of argue about what an agreement should be. And there's a very famous decision in 1907 that led to the basic wage. It's called the Sunshine Harvester Decision. So the basic wage was the minimum wage. Australia was the first place in the world to have a minimum wage. They just called it something different then. The problem was that the minimum wage was set for men. And so it was based upon what it was considered a man would need as a breadwinner to care for his family. And so women workers weren't included in that. So there was a male rate and then women had a separate rate, which was half of what the male rate was. Now, over years, uh, women workers were able to get that rate up but it still, it wasn't equal. And so the point that Zelda was saying was that this entire basis of the system that delineates between men and women shouldn't exist. If you work and you do work that's either the same or of comparable value, you should get paid the same, as simple as that. And that was the point that they were trying to make, that that sort of basis of the system, that gender division, that shouldn't exist. What was the reaction to a protest? Well, the reaction was pretty uh, fierce. It was pretty strong. I mean, but also it was extreme. It went down extremely well uh, within the union movement, particularly amongst women workers. So one thing that happened is that we often talk about the protest that Zelda did, which is not totally true because actually she did two protests of a very similar nature because it was popular enough and it got enough attention that two members of the teachers union got in contact with Zelda and said, this is wonderful. We want to help out. Uh, we want to do the same. So actually 10 days later, they went down to the Arbitration Commission uh, building, which was in Little Burke Street uh, here in Melbourne. Go visit if you want, 451 Little Burke Street, different building now, but you can see the place. And they did the exact same protest again. They chained themselves to the Arbitration Commission building. Uh, and it's this really wonderful story of Zelda's memoirs where she says, it was great to see all the really important people. I did that in quotation marks for everybody who's not Francis. <laughs> having to stoop under them to try and sort of like go into the building. Oh, because the chains be great were to have pictures them. of that. <laughs> and it's just, you know, this is the sort of thing that, again, the way that the whole system was set up was that you would have the so-called important people, the experts, the judges, the lawyers who go and sort of deliberate about the lives of working people 
often with working people not being particularly well represented, as was the case in that, that first arbitration court hearing. Moments like this, moments like protests are about bringing reality to those people and to those structures of power and about saying, no, you cannot go about your business day by day, as you expect, like business as usual, without listening to us and understanding what the issues actually are. And that's what um, women like Zelda managed to achieve in this period. They would refuse to allow the issues that working women were facing to be hypothetical. I've just got to mention this. Another really, really amazing thing that she did not too long after this. But So the, the rate for women was set at 75% of the male rate for most women. Her and a fellow activist um, a couple of years later had this major protest on trams in Melbourne. But what they did was just back in the days where they used to have conductors, was they'd go sit on the tram and when the conductors came to ask them to pay for a ticket, they would pay 75% of the ticket. Genius. And when the structure said, oh, that's not the price, they said, well, this is what women earn. So again, all these little moments which, you know, taken together, they're all about making sure that women's real lived experience are actually shown, is demonstrated. It's not something that can just slip past the conversation. Policymakers, the so-called important people, have to hear women. Would have been a bit confronting for the movement too because the union movement like would have and still does believes that it represents all working people and believes very much at its core in a sense of equality and uh, and a commitment to collective action. But you're right, it was a man's world. So how did the movement deal with being confronted with its own structural sexism? Yeah, so just some background. The movement adopted a formal policy in support of equal pay in 1941. And that was largely as a result of women activists such as Muriel Hegney, um, who's a particular hero of mine and the Council of Action for Equal Pay. So there's a formal position there. But of course, there's always a difference between a formal position and whether or not everybody supports it. And the union movement is literally a movement of millions. So there's many different sort of perspectives. And I think Bob Hawke's quite interesting as an example of this. So I said he was the advocate for the Equal Pay ca- uh, case in 1969. He supported that demand, of course. But he, he was not somebody who was known for progressive attitudes towards women. He was uh, he did express many sexist attitudes at this time, um, as is many others. And s- subsequently, he was challenged on that, and he did change some of those ideas. Some others he didn't. But it was highly confronting for many men in the movement, uh, particularly uh, many of the leaders who didn't like the idea that their historic claims and, and control over the issues of the movement were being challenged. And this, you know, is of course is what women's liberation did more broadly in um, other parts of society. And this is very much connected to the union movement here and spearheaded by union women. Was it challenged those structures of power and forced people to question their own assumptions? And that's never a comfortable process, but it's a necessary one if we're actually going to demonstrate our principles of solidarity in action. And I imagine Zelda would have copped a fair bit of heat from uh, people who weren't sympathetic to her position too. I mean, she put herself right out there, didn't she? That's right. Even within the Meat Workers Union, this was not supported by the leadership. As I should have mentioned, actually, that the protest that she did in June, she went on her lunch break. She didn't do that as an employee of the union. She did that on her lunch break. And the chain was donated by the painters and dockers union, but she had to go buy the locks herself. You know, there was still this, in that case, a very literal personal cost. But more broadly, there was a personal cost to her reputation, to you know, her position with the movement. It was you know, difficult to get a position working for other unions when you know, the leadership of her union was quite antagonistic with some of the things that she did. These are the realities of what women had to face at that time if they weren't in a union that had a supportive position. And of course, some unions did have far more supportive positions than others. So how long did it take for Zelda's demands to be met? Oh, are we still waiting? I think we're still waiting, aren't we? We're absolutely still waiting for the reality of equal pay. Uh, The legal changes to equal pay were made. So in 1969, that case uh, only applied to some women workers. In 1972, the ACTU brought another case, this time uh, underneath the uh, Whitlam government. Uh, And on the 15th of December, a new ruling was put forward for equal pay for work of comparable value or of equal value. So that then led to the legal recognition of the right to equal pay across industries. And in 1974, there was another case which ended the practice of having different minimum wages for men and women. So 1974 is the point where the legal right existed. 
But of course, all union members know that there's a major difference between a legal right existing abstractly and it being the lived reality and a practical reality for working people. And women workers have had to continue to campaign to have that right to equal pay recognised to demonstrate that their work is comparable, the you know sexist indignity that women workers constantly have to go to demonstrate that their work is com- of comparable value. And of course, we know the gender gap still exists. The gender gap then um, you know, is connected to the gap in insecure work. Women are more likely to be in insecure work positions. That then affects superannuation. So the lived reality of equal pay, we are still very far from achieving that. But that shouldn't diminish the fact that for those such as Zelda who pushed the legal basis of it, that that was a huge step forward compared to where they were. And so we're very much continuing her proud legacy today. Tell me about Zelda's life after the protests and what she went on to do, because I'd imagine that she continued to uh, challenge authority and uh, campaign and be an activist her entire life. And became (laughs) extremely well-loved. There's a a tribute to her at Trades Hall here in Melbourne. She wrote a lot. She wrote some um, beautiful books, one of of her own experiences, a memoir, one on another campaigner for equal pay, Kath Williams. Uh, She was a feminist organiser, as I mentioned, an activist involved in a series of campaigns connected to women's liberation. Uh, and as late as the uh, ASU's campaign in uh, between 2010 and 2012 for equal pay in the community sector, she was speaking at rallies. She was rabble rousing. You know, she's somebody who really continued that sort of fiery um, legacy and was deeply, deeply loved for it. Zelda Deprano, we thank you. You have been an icon, a legend of the union movement, and uh, her legacy lives on today. As you said, there are some books around that if you want to search Zelda Deprano's uh, name, you'll find them. Oh, yeah, and you can find interviews online, so you can actually hear her voice, which is really, really wonderful. If you're um, connected to uh, a state library or um, a local library, her books are usually there. And also, if you look at the Australian Trade Union Institute's history page, we've got quite a few tributes to her because... She deserves them. She does indeed. Another great union history moment with our historical oracle, Dr. Liam Byrne. And Dr. Liam, we'll uh, catch up with you again next week on The Job.